Hey everybody, Randy Bolander here on the third cup of coffee, and it has been a while since I did any kind of introduction. We've just been going directly into the teaching for maybe, I don't know, six weeks or a month or two months. I don't know. It's been a while, but I wanted to take a minute and just say, if you're living in the Kansas City area, there is so much that goes on at the bridge on a Sunday morning that you miss just listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube. If you're in the Kansas City area, let me invite you to join us. We would love to have you 10.30 a.m. at the Culture House in Olathe. And uh, this weekend, we are doing baby dedications. Super excited. One of the greatest things about being in a new church, a new setting, is that you do lots of things for the first time. This is the first set of baby dedications we've done. So join us in person. It will it'll be better if you are there. I want to start our, sec- our, let's see, our fourth week in Galatians, probably finish up today, unless we just go sideways, but I'm pretty sure we will. And I want to start this by reading what is really a key verse for the entire book. It could be said that we have worked our way up to this, okay, in Galatians 5.1. We'll give everybody just another minute there to get the, uh, the notes. But this passage in Galatians is kind of where the whole book is pointing to, all right? Do you ever talk to your kids, but you do a ramp up? You know exactly what you want to say, but it's like, all right, I told you all that, so I can tell you this. This is Paul saying, I told you all that, so I can tell you this. And let's read this one verse together, knowing that in saying it out loud, something kind of happens in us, and we get it in us. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's read that one more time because I think we got to say this or I'm afraid some of you are going to go right back to a yoke of slavery. We don't want that, okay? Can we read it again? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Just take a minute and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Galatians that we've been in for the past couple of weeks and for how passionate that Paul was that we would live lives of freedom. So right now we commit ourselves to the fullness of what it means to be free in Jesus and not return to a yoke of slavery. In Jesus' name, amen. That verse that we just read, that verse, the meaning of it hinges Can we show it again for a second? The meaning of it hinges on one word. It's freedom. Depending on what you superimpose onto that word freedom is what the whole thing is about. And if you get that word wrong, it doesn't matter if you get all the other ones right because you don't even know what you're for. 17 years ago, Kelsey and I had this intern named Taryn MacArthur. Taryn was vivacious and engaging and tall. She's about 6'2". She had this great South African accent. She was just the most elegant person. And she was living with us and interning with us on the hill in Washington, D.C. And uh, she had one problem, which was her government papers were expiring and she had about six months before she had to leave the country. And her lawyer says, there's really no way around this. If you were to be married, we could have buy some time, but there's like nobody on the horizon. So at the six-month mark, she meets a young guy named Adam. Adam's like six foot six, okay? And he is a hoot, and he loves Jesus, and they come together, and about three weeks after meeting, she tells him, if I'm what you want, you better hurry. That's paraphrased, but basically that was the discussion. Because I got six months. And he decided that was what he wanted. So he moved to D.C. to be near her and get to know her. Six months later, literally days before her deportation would have have engaged, Kelsey and I hosted their wedding. Lou was there. Lou Engle did the wedding. And in hosting that, we also hosted her parents who came over from South Africa. And uh, one day her mother was going to make lunch for us us being the four of them and then the two of us and the three kids we had at the time and a handful of interns. So it's not a small number of people. And uh, we said, do you need anything? She said, yes, I'm making tuna salad. We said, okay, that's great. She said, can you bring me two cans of tuna? And I remember thinking, 
there are people in this group that could eat three sandwiches without even batting an eye. Like, how on, what are you going to do with tuna salad? But we buy the tuna salad, and we bring the tuna to her, and she opens it and in turn dumps it on a bowl of lettuce. South African tuna salad. That's not what I was thinking when she said tuna salad, okay? I hope you're not watching. It was fine, okay? It was, it was what it was, but it wasn't what I thought it was. Sometimes the same words have different meanings from different people, and when we talk freedom, sometimes we don't know what everyone is talking about. Words mean different things to different people. When words mean different things, confusion rushes in even without malice. And one of the areas of confusion that is most prevalent is what it means to be free in Jesus. Now, prepare for caveats, okay? Caveats incoming. I love our country. I think it's the best system that could have been invented by fallen men. I think our nation should function in protection of those freedoms. I think we should export those freedoms around the world in as much as others are willing to fight for them as well. All of that I'm for. That said, the feeling of patriotism or the celebration of freedom you feel when the fireworks go off and Lee Greenwood sings, all of that freedom is not exactly the same as what Paul is talking about here. They're not at odds with one another, but one is not the fullness of the other. Most in the church are confused about that, at least. And they stop at the near shore of the freedom of what it means to be a citizen in the United States, and they never make it to the far shore of what it means to be free in Christ, which is a whole different thing. Not at odds to the first, but different. Living in a free country does not necessarily equip one for living in a free kingdom. You thought the tuna salad example was confusing. Because freedom in America, while it is beautiful, is not the package that Paul wrote about when he said, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Because if political freedom is what Paul was talking about, we have to explain some things to the Chinese and a lot of places around the world. Freedom in Christ is what Paul wrote Galatians for, but it's easy for us to miss that because we have this other looming definition of freedom that is real in its context but does not fully express what Paul was talking about. In the U.S., our idea of freedom is more reflected by the lyrics of the Beastie Boys than it is by the Bible because we think we are free to fight for our right to party. Exactly. That's freedom to us, to take what's ours. The latter part of the book of Galatians really drives his point home of what he is talking about when he says freedom. Chapters 1 through 4 lay the groundwork for freedom that goes far beyond the right to bear arms or free speech, both of which I'm good with. But one day we will get to see Jesus face to face, and even then the freedoms that we hold dearest now are going to seem so infantile in comparison to the freedom that we realize he offered. Galatians 5 and 6, Paul tries to impress upon the Galatians exactly how powerful it is to be free in Jesus. And he describes it loosely in four ways. The first way he talks about it is that we are free to rest instead of react. You know anybody whose default setting is panic? Like on most di days, they, their dial's up to 11. And any little thing that doesn't fit with their plan, they just, you know, freak out. There's a music group in the 80s, maybe 90s, called Panic at the Disco. Some of you are living panic at the Costco. Like everything is in level nine. And we've all been there at some point. We have all completely overreacted. Years ago, I was driving cross-country with some friends in an RV and uh, broke down. And it was a borrowed RV. It was one of those trips where nobody on the RV actually owns the RV. It's like worst-case scenario. And uh, the whole breakdown is, is a colossal debacle that I'll save for another day. But we break down in this horribly expensive vehicle that belongs to none of us. And we get out. And as we're standing there, having nearly just killed some people, uh, I pull out my cell phone and I start to call the owner to tell him what's happened. Now, the owner is arguably less mechanically inclined than we are. He's hundreds of miles away. 
And I'm freaking out, and I'm, I'm panicking. And my friend Kevin says, what are you doing? I'm calling Steve. He's, he takes my phone away from me. He goes, why are you doing that? I don't know. He said, Steve can't fix it. Steve's not here. It's still on us. We've got to figure this out. Don't panic. Don't react immediately. Just settle down. It's remarkably good advice throughout life. We spend a lot of our time reacting to things that happen to us, and Paul teaches the Galatians in this passage, freedom in Jesus is freedom to rest rather than react. Now, do a little self-evaluation here. In what areas of your life is panic your default? Like, what areas of your life do you just go to an 11? Is it finances? Is it your children? Family? Your job, what area of life do you recognize you disproportionately? Some of you are like, you just nailed four categories. I'm all of those, okay? I get it. I see it in your eyes. I've been there. Panic is rarely a good decision-making guide. You make the worst decisions under the influence of panic. Never has anybody in history looked back and said, it was a good thing I panicked when I did. In Galatians Faced with resistance that is inherent to life, the Galatians were panicking and they were going straight back to what was familiar, even though what was familiar was bondage. And Paul plays the role that my friend Kevin did, and he says, don't panic. It causes you to make bad decisions fast, and you can always make bad decisions later. Galatians 5, 1 and 2. For freedom... He has set us free. Stand firm there and do not submit again, don't do this twice, to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you go back to all the rules, if you just run back blindly in a panic, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does Paul identify as a source of freedom that they have enjoyed? He says, hey, Christ set you free. You didn't earn it. The level to which you enjoyed freedom in your life and breathing space and calm is to the level in which you have embraced the freedom that he has given you. The only reason not to stand firm in what is the story of the gospel in your own story would be panic that perhaps God is not as good as he said he was. Wait, wait, wait. Is God good? Yes, then don't panic. Is he what he said he was? Yes, then don't panic. Most of us struggle with the idea of are we free or are we not free? And the pivot point is that place of panic. Many of you know the name D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist in the late 1800s. What you might not know is D.L. Moody preached his last crusade here in Kansas City in a building that was purpose-built at the location of where Municipal Auditorium is downtown. They built this huge building in 1899. He preached his last crusade in it. He got on a train, went back to Chicago, and died, and the building burned down the next year. They rebuilt with what is Municipal Auditorium now. D.L. Moody used to say this about the idea of being free or being a slave and that panic. He used to tell the story of a slave who, after the Civil War, said... Am I now free or am I not? When I go to my old master, he says I'm not free. And when I go to my people, they say that I am. I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but my master said that he didn't have a right to. That which seeks to enslave you will never tell you that you are free. Okay? The panic that you go through will never lead you to freedom. The slave master will never tell the slave, yeah, you're free to go. It just doesn't happen. If you've given yourself to Jesus and questioned your freedom, it's because you're allowing room for other voices in there. And those voices are actually vested. They don't want you to be free. The Greek believers in Galatians were heavily influenced by the Jewish believers who predated them. And the Jewish believers were heavily impressed upon by the law that said, you're not free. And in the panic that followed, they rushed back to that yoke of slavery even though there was no freedom in it. That which seeks to enslave you will never tell you that you're free. And Paul charges them. He goes, you've got freedom, and that freedom allows your heart to rest, not to be thrown into reactionary cycles of panic that sends you right back into bondage. Galatians 5, 5, uh, and 6 for through the Spirit, by faith, 
We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Freedom in Christ involves believing in the power of what he has done enough that you will wait for the manifestation of it. Means, okay, I know your word. I will rest in this until I see the fulfillment of what you promised me. Most of the time that you're put in a position of waiting, there is some penalty for not waiting, and you don't like that, but you get it, okay? You go to the DMV, you wait. You don't like it, but you know if you don't wait, the ticket for having an expired tag is significant. So you don't want that, so you wait. You go to the grocery store and you wait. You don't like to wait. You could just grab your groceries and wheel out the door, but if you do that, you cannot complain about how tight the handcuffs are. Okay? There is a penalty to not waiting, and we think about it and we go, okay, we're going to wait. We understand waiting, and we're all shocked when we're surprised to do it. Paul's message is don't think of it as waiting. Think of it as resting. Think of it as waiting for the hope of what I have promised you, but it's resting in me. Songwriter that I've had my eye on for about 10 years, just a phenomenal lyricist, uh, Josh Gerald. He's um, it's kind of, imagine Bob Dylan, but the songs rhyme and they're only three minutes long, okay? That's, that's so, in, kind of like better than Bob Dylan in some ways. But in regard to this idea of our tendency to react and to, to, to grab a hold of things, he writes this. My rest is a weapon against the oppression of man's desire to control things. He says there is something aggressive in the spirit about resting in the Lord. Because the option is your desire to grab a hold of things and make something happen. To be free in Christ means you are free to rest rather than react. Some of you are so tired of reacting that you can't stop. He's telling you, rest. Well, but I thought this was going to happen, and it didn't happen. And I was with Jason Upton one time, and I remember him. This is a paraphrase, not a direct quote, but something to the effect he said of, people say that when God shuts the door, he always opens a window. But sometimes I think he wants us to look around for a couch and take a nap. Maybe the door is open when we wake up. There is something deeply spiritual about your ability to rest in what God says. The person free enough in Jesus to take a nap during a crisis in a storm or what they don't know what to do is a person who is free indeed. And we are free to rest rather than react. Second way he talks about this idea of freedom is that we are free to succeed instead of fail. We're free to succeed instead of fail. One of my favorite characters in Greek mythology is this guy named Sisyphus. Now, Sisyphus was a character in what the Greeks would have called the God world. You know, we have like Marvel, okay? But the Greeks had this other little universe they created in their heads. Sisyphus was one of these guys. And Sisyphus cheated death twice. Actually died, got thrown into Hades, and talked his way out. One time tied up death, got out twice. Zeus was so afraid that he would teach human beings to do this that he says, okay, we've got to give him a job. What would be the worst thing we could do? Let's give him pointless work. And so Zeus commands him to roll a boulder up a hill. When he gets to the top, or almost to the top, he steps back and he's got to let it roll all the way to the bottom again. Goes back down, rolls it up, steps back. It rolls, for all of eternity. He's like the patron saint of undoable jobs. Did he ever succeed? He succeeded in what was his lot to do, but did he ever accomplish anything? No, it was pointless work. It was like the death sentence that never fully ended. The only fate worse than dying is to live forever with pointless work. It's like failing without the privilege of quitting. It's failing forever. The law was, in a sense, the Jewish equivalent of the Greek sentence of Sisyphus. Even if you did it perfectly, it left you lacking. What was his job? To roll the rock to the top of the hill and let it roll? Even if you did it right, it wasn't enough. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about fruitlessness of the law. Hebrews 10, verses 1 and then 3 and 4. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He admits the law doesn't work. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, to which the Jews go, what are we doing? We're rolling this rock up the hill, and it rolls back to the bottom every year. It's actually a very accurate picture. The Jewish theology of atonement was one that said, your sins never got forgiven. They just got pushed back. And then the next year, they all came back. If you're 45 years old, on your 45th day of atonement, you press them back 45 years. On your 46th year, you got 46 years of sins on your back. Like, it just never really did the job. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody who brought up something from the past that you thought was settled? Don't point at anybody. All right? But you've done that. You're like, I thought we landed that. Nope, it's back. That was the Jewish thought around atonement. Everything the Jews did hung over them like a cloud. Even if it was in that window of atonement, it's still coming back. It's still coming back. Paul said, it doesn't have to be that way. You guys started well, but somebody had snuck in and convinced you of a works-based faith, and you went right back to the law, and even a little bit of thinking about going back that direction can infect your body and your mind and invade your soul. And in the next passage in Galatians there, you can hear his affection for them, but his warning, don't go down that path of salvation by law or works because like pride even a little bit of it will beat a brother up he says this galatians 5 7 to 9 you were running well he's like i just i just looked over at you you were doing fine you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth this persuasion is not from him who calls you it's like this idea you've got of going back to the law, that was not Jesus' idea. This idea of panicking, that was not Jesus' idea. And then he warns them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's like, if you even start thinking this, it just your mind and your body go that direction. Western understanding is very compartmentalized, isn't it? We've got our little boxes. Western male thinking, even more compartmentalized. You have compartments in your compartments just different. Those of you raising boys and girls, you, you see it. You know, I always said our first three boys, I, I didn't realize it, but boys are like puppies. The end of the day, you hose them off. They just start over the next morning. They completely reboot, reinstall the operating system. Girls, whole different world. There are times when my girls, are, you know, we're 40 minutes into a conversation. And I have, what are we talking about? Because it's just like everything has come from history. And when I was three and remember that time, no, I don't. We are good, though, for the most part, at compartmentalizing. But the one thing that will not stay in its compartment is the idea that you can succeed or find peace with God any other way than through grace. Because really, that's pride. And pride infects everything. It's like a little bit of leaven. It just works its way all through the lump. Guard your heart, especially diligently, against pride because that little bit works its way in maybe you notice that child at the school drop-off line who is just unbearable i mean you know this kid You're, and, and you are just proud enough to say i'm glad little johnny's not like that oh grace to you because that little bit of pride works through everything. Maybe you take subtle victory in the fact that your spouse always does a task wrong and you know how to do it right. And as much as you act frustrated by it, there's this perverse sense of victory. It's pride. It works through you and it becomes so much bigger than you ever thought it would. The law or salvation by works is pride with a codified system that takes over your behavior, and we are called to be people of faith so we do not become people of pride. People of faith who say, we are only here because the Lord got us here. Because the minute we think that anything we did got us here, we go off the road. That thought, salvation by law or works, is toxic and malignant. It spreads and it kills. It grows and it kills some more. It never leads you to success. 
Paul is saying that the freedom in Christ is a freedom that allows us to succeed in finding peace with God, not repeatedly fail because we're trying to do it through pride. How does our freedom in Christ lead us to success and not failure? If Jesus set us free from the law, where do we find success so we're not rolling the rock up the hill for the rest of our life? Some religious leaders were apparently struggling with this idea. They're like, all right, he's teaching something here, but it, it's not gelling well with the idea that we have to find ourselves a way to God. And so they ask him in Matthew 22, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Like, what, can you give us some cliff notes here? What's the easiest way to achieve what you want us to achieve? It's actually an admission that what they're doing is not working. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The, the picture he is drawing there is like a peg driven into the wall. And he said the law and the prophets, all tradition, it all hangs on this one peg of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and loving others as yourself. Jesus radically simplifies the requirements they were putting themselves under, but he did point this thing out. If you love God, you will love others. And later in Galatians, Paul paraphrases it. He says, the freedom you have in Christ allows you to be a success in doing that because a free man doesn't worry about what people think and he's able to serve them. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Je Paul actually condenses Jesus' words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but know this, you are free to be a success in God's eyes and not continually fail the way you have felt. Doesn't mean you'll be rich. Maybe, maybe not. The real question is, will you be successful? Don't dumb down that word of success to just mean finances. He will put within you what it takes for you to enjoy what he heard from his father, which is, this is my son or this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that will be success to you. So he tells them, you are free to rest and not react. You are free to succeed and not fail. You are free to follow and not wander. Free to follow and not wander. Take a look at this guy. This is my, my guy, Percy Fawcett. Would you follow this guy? I think he might. I admire the hat. I mean, I, you know, how would you follow this guy? He's an explorer. You go, will I follow this guy or not? Probably best you not. In the early 1920s, he became enamored with a lost city in the, on the borderlands of Colombia and Brazil. And in 1925, he went to search for it, had gone into the jungle a couple of times, but he decided, I'm going to find it this time. So he and his son and another guide wandered into the borderlands of Colombia and Brazil from the west through Colombia to find this place and was never, ever seen or heard from again. Just gone, all three of them. Never found bodies, never found trails, never found anything. If you've seen the movie The Lost City of Z, it is about this guy. And you watch it, and it's a little, it's a little um, rattling to watch him walk into this wilderness no, he, knowing he doesn't have a clue where he's going. He's wandering, literally, in a place that even today is one of the least mapped places on earth. Just wanders in. Now, it's tragic that he and his son and his, his uh, guide, we assume, pass away. We don't, we don't really know. That's tragic. What is worse is in subsequent, subsequent years, years to follow, you know, find a simpler word, in years to follow, over a hundred men died trying to find him. There's a lesson here. When you don't know where you're going, you often hurt more people than yourself because there are people following. And the Bible says that you are free not to wander, but to follow Jesus. The freedom that Paul was talking about when he was, said he was for freedom was a 
freedom that includes a freedom to follow Jesus rather than wander our own path with a wake of destruction to follow. If you wander like my man Percy very long, there's a wake of people who are following you. Children, friends, people you influence that you don't even know. Then their lives are lost because you wandered rather than followed. Think about it. Your grandchildren will live with the ripples of how you lived your life. Your great-grandchildren will live with the decisions that you have made. When you wander and don't follow Christ, you actually make it harder for generations to follow. Galatians 5, 16 to 18, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He says, no, no, I am willing to lead you. And if you follow me, not only do you not wander, but those that will follow you in generations behind you will actually walk a better path. A couple of comments here on just what it means to be free to follow and not wander. Freedom to follow is not a license to sin. It doesn't mean you can gratify your own desires and you, I'm free. I've heard people say this. What? We're just free. Free to do it. No, 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 no. The more you exercise your freedom to follow, the further you get from your old habits. This is true of habits. It's true of mindsets. It's true of behavior. The more you follow Jesus, the more space occurs between you and the way you used to live. Jesus says, come follow me, and believe it or not, then he goes somewhere. And it's not where you were going. I feel we've downplayed this idea that to follow Jesus is to actually follow Jesus. We think he sits beside us in the blanket and we just spend time together. It is the goal of Jesus to lead your life and not just go for a walk, but suddenly you are free to follow in a way that you were not free to follow before. Wanderers and followers lead very different lives. He writes, the works of the flesh are evident. Like It's pretty clear who's wandering and who's following. In Galatians 5.25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit means you will step in a way that you would not have stepped if you were walking on your own path. And that will manifest itself in peculiarities about your life that can only be described by you being a follower of Jesus. If there's not some area of your life that only makes sense because you're a follower of Jesus, I would submit that you aren't following too closely. Because when you follow, your priorities shift how you spend money changes, how you speak changes, and suddenly you're making decisions that people look at and go, that was an interesting choice. Why did they choose that? You know, you might look at at the Grenzes and go, okay, you went to Thailand for five weeks with your kids. Why did you choose that? Like, what, what, because now not everybody's going to go to Thailand. But there's, there should be things if you're following about your, think for, just uncomfortable 10 seconds here. Think, what is it about your life that is different primarily because Jesus told you? Some of you got, you're like, it's eight seconds, come on, come on. You're like, if there's nothing different, are you following? Like, if you have not made a hard choice along the way because the Lord, I feel like the Lord wants us to, and whatever that choice is, I'm not laying that out for you, but how has he affected your plans along the way? Or are you just making your own plan and playing that game? That's called wandering. Especially when Jesus is going, over here, walk, time to go. And you're wandering. The danger of that for you, for your kids for subsequent generations is horrifying. I'm imploring you, young couples, determine to follow Jesus no matter what he says. Act quickly. If he says give, check with your spouse, but give. If he says go, go. And you know what? You're going to miss it once in a while. 
but it is better to miss it once in a while than to miss it every time. You are free to follow and not wander. Finally, as he closes this up, he says, you are free to give instead of take. Man, we come into the world takers, don't we? Like we, as infants, it's like, I can't hold my head up, you know? Like that's kind of unique in the animal kingdom. Not, not entirely, but there's a number of animals that are born with significantly more skills than we have. You know, hour after birth, the giraffe is like standing up and walking around. Like why on earth are, are giraffes like born with innate abilities that humans are like, can't do that. Like they contribute nothing except stuff you have to take away. We need somebody to bring us things, to care for us, to make sure we don't hurt ourselves. A lot of people get bigger and never really outgrow that. There's a reason we're all referred to as consumers, but some are really consumers. This is really what we mean when we say somebody's acting like a baby. They're consuming, but they're not contributing. They are protesting that they're not receiving what they insist they need or what they deserve, and they're old enough to actually produce and give to others. Freedom in Jesus actually frees us from the neediness that we are born with and frees us to freely give because we have freely received. Freely give what? Whatever's needed that you have two of or whatever the Lord speaks to you. Being centered on others and what they need is a massive philosophical shift and really can only be made by those who are free in Jesus. It's the only people who are really able to be fully other-centered. Remember earlier in chapter 5, Paul referenced the idea that the law could be summed up or fulfilled in one little line. Remember? Love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds so tidy. But remember, those are people. He's saying this to people who had readily gone back to the law. He has said this to people who have readily allowed pride to infect them. And he's saying, you know what? If you really want to love, you really want to follow, then love others as yourself. To some people, laws and regulations and rules seem more doable than loving their neighbor. Like, given the choice between a law that doesn't work and rolling up a rock up a hill the rest of their life and having it roll back to the bottom. Or serving their neighbors, they're like, well, the rock's not that big. Because I can't fathom doing this. Because really, they're not that free. My point is that while Paul was simplifying the law, he wasn't oversimplifying it. More appropriately, he was turning on its head and saying, instead of serving people to get points with God even, you have the freedom to serve because you know you've already won. You know you are fully provided for. You know that the Lord looks at you and says, I'll take care of you. Can you take care of someone else? When you achieve, it sounds achieve. When you, when you come to this place of freedom in Jesus that you can serve others, you have no idea how much fun that is or how fulfilling it is. But as long as you're keeping score and worrying about yourself, you can't afford to play that game. I enjoy the game of ping pong at an irrational level. Okay, like I really like ping pong. I know it's a shock to find out that I'm not a natural athlete. You can laugh. But ping pong, for whatever reason, I can play and I love. And I really get into it. First time my daughter-in-law saw me play ping pong, she was alarmed. She said, this is a Randy I did not even know existed. You yell and stomp and jump up and down and threaten to throw the paddle. And like, it's just really competitive, okay? Ping pong, that's it. However, the most fun ping pong and the craziest shots and the most creative shots usually happen when you're not playing a game. Because when you're playing a game, you, you don't want to risk things and you focus and you're just trying to get the ball past that guy. But later on, you're like, you know, you're doing this. And you're, the most creative, fun play happens when you're not really keeping score. Let me tell you, the most creative, fun life is when you're done keeping score. 
And when suddenly you know, I've got everything that I need because the Lord will provide it, so now I can creatively look and see how I can meet other people's needs. Now I can, I'm free to serve rather than to be served. Galatians 5, 13, 14. For you were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the next chapter, he lays out what freedom in serving others actually looks like. And let me say, free, you are free to live with a generous spirit, and we think of generosity in terms of what we can give financially, but a generous spirit is so much broader than that. It is how you steward things. It is how you regard people. It is how you address people. Do you address them? Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your heart towards them? Actually, the, the financial giving piece is the simplest, easiest I know people who give lots of money who are really not generous people. They're very closed. Some of the most generous people in my life have never given me a dollar, but I've lived in the wake of their, genero- their generous spirit to me and my family. Those who are free in Jesus can afford to be more generous in every aspect of life. Someone free in Christ is free to restore other people who are caught in sin. That's an act of generosity. If you look at Galatians 6, he starts this way, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill of love to Christ. Your brother's sin is not just his issue. It is an issue of the whole. But only those, it says, only those who are spiritual can actually take the time and help restore someone back into fellowship. And it takes an element of freedom in your own heart to be able to do that. In the past few years, there's been a great deal of holding people accountable in the public world. And it's good. It's honestly, it's good. For too long, people in the public eye have been able to live duplicious lives, and we are now holding them accountable in the ways that maybe we have never done that before, and that's good. However, a believer who is free in Jesus has the freedom not just to hold somebody accountable, but to work with them and restore them into fellowship, which is a completely different thing that the world can't touch. Cancel culture is not Jesus's culture. Well, you don't know what they did. They're not safe. I'm not saying let them work in the nursery, okay? But it is a spiritual act of generosity to work with someone who is repentant and to restore them to fellowship. And it takes somebody who's pretty free in Jesus to walk that out. But canceling people and shutting them down and putting them outside the camp never to come back in again is not what Jesus taught us to do. He said, there will be those among you who are spiritual who can restore, but it takes a generous heart to do that. Being free and being generous is also extended to those who call us higher or disciple us in the faith. Now, I actually debated skipping this verse out of fear of sounding self-serving. And so just bear with me here, okay? The role of being an authority and being the primary teaching voice here, I thought, ah, this could be misinterpreted, but it's in the Bible, and I have a higher value for biblical accuracy than I do for what people think my motives are. So just extend a little, you know, are we free enough to give me grace here to understand I'm not just talking about myself? Freedom in Christ includes understanding who you are receiving the word from or being discipled by or being encouraged by and giving them some measure of generous honor. And that's not just finances, but that's, that's honorly just, just honoring them in a way. Galatians 6, 6 through 8, he says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The simplest kind of like bonehead interpretation of that is the one that everybody trips over. It's like, oh, he's talking about paying the pastor. No, that's the simplest. No, no, no. I'm talking about being generous to those who have blessed you and spoken into your life, which could be a dozen people in this room. It's just honoring people and go, oh, no, I'm blessed because of you, and I, in turn, I want to speak blessing over I want to regard you with generosity. Remember, generous is way bigger than finances. It's how you regard people who have helped 
spiritually form you. It's about acknowledging that and being grateful. I, uh, about a year ago, set some time aside for what I called conversations of significance, which sounds very highfalutin, but that was just a phrase that came to me. And I determined over the course of a month, I was going to set aside an hour each week and call someone over the history of my life who had spoken into me and called me higher and blessed me. And I, I told them in advance, this is why I'm calling. I'm calling to say thank you and just talk about some things. And I, I'm telling you what, it was an encouragement to people and it was an encouragement to me to draw that connection. It's saying, regard those who have helped you along the way. But you've got to be free to be able to do that. And freedom in Christ allows you to do that. Finally, he says, if you're free in Christ, you'll be free to do good for the long haul. Jenna, I'm going to ask you to step up to the keyboard real quick. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. He said, You are free to live with this heart position of gratitude and blessing for the rest of your life. You never have to circle back around to the law. You never have to make that half step back into pride. You can live the rest of your life free to rest and not react. Free to succeed and not fail. Free to follow him and not wander and take people with you. And free to give instead of take. Stand with me for a moment. Even as we were worshiping this morning, I felt specifically that that portion of script or that portion of teaching this morning about the freedom to rest, some of you do not feel you have the freedom to do that. And the enemy has even tricked you into panicking and disguising it as responsibility. I'm just trying to be responsible rest. I'm just trying to take care of it by myself. The word of the Lord to you is rest. The word of the Lord to you is take a nap. You get up off that couch, the door may be open. I'm going to ask everybody to just bow your heads for a moment. And as Jenna begins to sing over us, just begin to commit in your own way to the rest of Jesus this afternoon. Father, we want to be free to rest in you. We don't want to react, God. We don't want to panic. We want to rest in you. We are free to believe that you are as good as you say you are. You are good, you are good. We are free to take you at your word this morning. Some of you are literally afraid to admit the panic in your heart because the idea of resting in him is actually scarier. It's safer. It is safer. So, Father, we ask this morning that we would have the bravery to explore freedom in Jesus as you have promised us. A freedom to rest. I speak against panic. And I speak against fear that would say it's all up to us and maybe we even run back to the rules. We commit in our heart to follow this morning and to rest in the knowledge that you are good.